Romans 5 is where our sermon text is found this evening. And then if you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read Article 15 of our Confession of Faith. That's on page 76 in the back. Uh, We won't read that together. I'll just read it. But if you'd like to follow along and get an idea for the words there, that's on page 76. Romans 5, verse 12 through verse 21. Uh, We won't unpack absolutely everything in this passage. There's a a ton of things here. And uh, just a beautiful proclamation of the gospel of grace. Uh, But we will focus in on a couple of things that illumine for us what we'll be looking at uh, in, in our confession of faith. But this is Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. God's word given to us for our good, let us attend to its reading. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Article 15 of our Confession of Faith. Article on original sin. We believe this is a faithful representation of what we see in Scripture. We know that councils and confessions can err. It is not like the word of God, but it is a faithful representation here. So let us... Think of these things and unpack them tonight. Original sin, Article 15. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease, wherewith even infants in their mother's womb are infected, and which produces in man all sorts of sin, 
being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. Nor is it altogether abolished or wholly eradicated even by baptism, since sin always issues forth from this woeful source, as water from a fountain. Notwithstanding, it is not imputed to the children of God unto condemnation, but by his grace and mercy is forgiven them. Not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh, desiring to be delivered from this body of death. Wherefore, we reject the error of the Pelagians, who assert that sin proceeds only from imitation. People of God, let's consider these things together this evening. Consider the doctrine of sin, of original sin. Uh, We consider the teaching of our faith, our forefathers who stood up for the truth of the gospel at the time of the Reformation. And we think of the, the fathers of the faith stretching even further back than that in the first few centuries of the church. Men like Augustine who went to the word of God and considered all of these things, considered all of the things that it said and came to the realization of the importance of understanding this doctrine of sin. We come before the God of the universe to consider all of these things tonight and it's interesting when you consider all of these things or the doctrine of sin itself and to remember that uh, we do this as an act of worship before God when we open his word and consider all of these things. But remembering particularly that we are sinners is a humbling moment for us. And I, I start there because as I was studying for this message, I was simply reminded that I need to remember that I am a sinner, weak and helpless without the mercy and the grace of God. And I was reminded of that as as you look out into the world and you often see that this world is shrouded with all kinds of bad thinking about the goodness that you can and should and will find in man. Often we think that we are the standard of the good life, that we are the source of flourishing. And oftentimes this can come about as, as we consider more and more the ways in which our world has advanced, various kinds of technology, various ways in which we have improved the quality of life in several areas of this world. We can start to think that human beings, the human race, really isn't bad at all. Really, it's the source of goodness. But the Bible gives us a a different picture, doesn't it? If we leave behind human sinfulness, if we we leave behind original sin, inherited sin, that would be the old old Dutch phrase of original sin was really something that, that meant inherited sin, something that had been passed down from Adam all the way down to us, each and every generation. If we lose that, then really, we, we, we lose our reason for faith. We lose our reason for hope. And we lose our reason for, for ever thinking that we get anything wrong. And if the mindset of human beings changes to where we start thinking that 
all of our instincts are okay and all of our desires are right because they're coming forth from something inside of us that is not inherently sinful, we'll see how backward we're going to start viewing everything in our lives, how twisted we're going to get, how confused we're going to get. When people start thinking that way, they'll end up in a place with, without uh, uh, very long, t- uh, very much time passing. They will see how foolish it is to end up in that kind of mindset. Because people know. They know intuitively that there's something wrong with us. And that thing that is wrong with us is sin. So we must fight to stay aware of sin must fight to stay aware of our sinfulness. I was reminded of, of that this week, that that's a battle. That's a fight that the church needs to fight because there are people both outside of the church but then within the church as well that are trying to water down the doctrine of sin, trying to make it go away. I came across, you could perhaps um, probably call it more of a lecture, um, certainly wasn't a sermon and certainly didn't have much truth in it anyways, but it was titled uh, this, Why Atonement Theology Will Kill Christianity. Why Atonement Theology, so atonement theology is the theology of the cross, the theology that at the cross, the price that Jesus paid for us, for sin, that is how we are reconciled to God. That is how we are forgiven and we need to be forgiven. So here was an Episcopalian priest giving a lecture called Why Atonement Theology Will Kill Christianity. And his contention was that the world has changed a lot. A lot of things have changed in the world. And if you keep talking about sin, people are going to leave the church. They're not going to want to listen to you anymore. I found that ironic. You know, the, the Episcopalian church in America has had people leaving by the tens of thousands each and every year. Churches emptying out because many of their ministers are saying to people that there is nothing wrong with you. And if there is nothing wrong with you, then there's no reason that you have to go to church to hear the message about how you can be made right. So it's ironic that here we had a priest saying that if you keep preaching the cross, if you keep preaching sin, if you keep preaching redemption, it's going to kill Christianity. Meanwhile, The mindset for which he's advocating, that's the very thing that has emptied out many of the mainline churches in America. Uh, Because when you tell people that there is no reason for them to come to church to be reminded of the redemption that they have in Christ, people will listen to that. And if you tell them that there's nothing wrong with them, then they'll say, well, I guess everything is fine and everything is okay. Meanwhile, uh, In contrast to what this man was saying, evangelical Christianity continues to be on fire throughout the world, particularly in the developing world. Evangelical Christianity, by which I mean Christianity that preaches the whole counsel of God and particularly the gospel of grace, how we are reconciled to God uh, out of our sin and set right with God by the work of Jesus Christ, that message is transforming lives, it's transforming hearts at a rate which confounds sociologists, which confounds anthropologists and psychologists because they, uh, many of them can't grasp why anyone would want to hear this message, this message of sin and sins forgiven in Christ. The answer is quite simple. 
The answer as to why the gospel still works, as to why evangelism still works, is quite simple. People know in their heart of hearts that they are sinners and that they need to be rescued. Back to this man who was giving this talk, mentioned something else that uh, I found quite ironic in what he was saying. He said he was always struck by the way that his liturgy, and the liturgy of his church is the Book of Common Prayer, which is just a wonderfully rich resource from our past, very reformed, beautiful prayers, uh, uh, beautiful um, all kinds of things that, that can help us as we think about reformed worship. And he said he's always struck by the way in which the theme of sinfulness, human sinfulness, is woven into all of the threads of his liturgy. So this man reads the forms each and every week, and he admitted while he was giving this talk that while he reads the the forms, he's basically apologizing in his mind for how much it's talking about sin. Uh, One of the prayers in the Book of Common Prayer is a book that I use in a lot of our morning uh, worship services where it's a prayer of confession and we say we have followed the devices and the desires of our own hearts. It says we have offended you in thought, in word, in deed. It says we are miserable offenders. That's the book of common prayer. So this man says that he reads the forms just as a a, a really ritual. It's not meaningful at all. But he said this. He said, so I read these forms and I'm wondering why these people keep on coming to church. And that's just it. People come to church if they are told the truth about what the Bible says about them, that they need to be rescued, that they need to be redeemed, redeemed out of sin. We need salvation, and we need salvation because we are sinful. Universal sinfulness, by which we mean every single person who is born into this world, every single person except Jesus Christ himself, but every single person born into this world inherits the sinfulness that entered the world at the fall. Universal sinfulness is a cardinal Christian doctrine. It is in many ways the most distinctive Christian doctrine because it sets the Christian faith apart from all other faiths. All other faiths will try to find enough goodness in man so that he can overcome his estrangement from God, so that he can overcome uh, whatever hurdles stand in the way between him and the divine. But it's a distinctive Christian doctrine because it makes it, uh, the gospel, it makes the Christian faith stand out in the best way possible. Because it brings us to the glories of God's grace, just as we saw in our confession of faith. It brings us to the glories of God's grace because in the Christian faith, The gospel needs to be so glorious, it needs to be so powerful, it needs to be so perfect and complete in order to overcome our sinfulness, in order to vanquish the wickedness, the wretchedness that is in the human heart. So as you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, you can assure yourself of this, that I am saved by grace, that Jesus is enough for me. That he is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? So, two things tonight that we'll consider. We'll consider this cardinal, distinctive Christian doctrine of universal human sinfulness. But then, 
equally important and certainly more comforting and assuring is that God's love and his complete forgiveness in Christ by the gospel through faith, that is the other distinctly Christian doctrine that sets it apart from all other faiths, that no other faith shares with us. So, first to consider and rehash many of the things that we've already started to unpack, universal uh, human sinfulness. All other religions in some way carry a message of works righteousness. Works righteousness. Climb the ladder to achieve your righteousness before God. Overcome whatever is keeping you from God, but you have enough inside of you to overcome it. One might think of Islam, for instance, and and one of the mantras of Islam, forgiveness comes only to those who deserve it. Apologist Ravi Zacharias tells a story about meeting a, a young Palestinian Christian who was witnessing a conversation between Brother Andrew and a Muslim leader. So this is a conversation taking place in the Middle East. This Muslim leader wanted to kill eight Jews because four Muslims had been killed within Israel. And so this Muslim leader thought that Jews only have half of the inherent value of Muslims. So in order to set the balances right, he needed to kill eight Jews because of the four Muslims who had been killed in Israel. And Brother Andrew looks at this Muslim leader and he says, um, who made you the executioner of the world? And this man said, I'm not an executioner, I am an instrument of God's justice. Brother Andrew looked at this man and said, so what is there to be said about forgiveness? And this Muslim leader said exactly what had been taught to him. He said, forgiveness comes only to those who deserve it. This Palestinian Christian went from that conversation later on, uh, several days or months or years later even, speaking to Ravi Zacharias, he said, in that moment I saw the difference between two faiths, two worldviews, exactly opposite. In the Christian faith, forgiveness is not something that you have to earn. And that's good news, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Salvation comes only to those who deserve it in the other faiths. And the Christian gospel stands against that. The Christian gospel stands against that in light of our human sinfulness. What's the picture that the Bible uses to describe our human sinfulness most often? Death. Death. Our sinfulness is a spiritual death. An utter helplessness to save ourselves. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Death. Unable to get yourself out of it. Romans 5 uses the same language, but Romans 5 actually introduces actual literal death and how it entered the world through sin. Sin sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. That first verse, Romans 5 verse 12, we'll spend most of our time there tonight. That begins and ends with sin and has the universal spreading of death in the middle There are two possible ways to understand this, and uh, scholars who believe the gospel, believe in the authority of scripture, believe that really two ways to best understand this. The, The more common way of understanding verse 12 is reading it just as our translation says it, that death spreads to all men because all sinned. And what that is saying is just reiterating the fact that in the Garden of Eden, Adam was acting as a representative. And so when Adam sinned in the garden, we all sinned because he is our covenant head. 
He is our representative. And so Paul saying here that death spread to all men because all sinned. We remember that through this saying, in Adam's fall sinned we all. But there's another possible way of understanding it that's in accord with scripture, that's in accord with the gospel, and it doesn't necessarily contradict with that way of understanding it, but you can understand that last phrase as being the effect of death spreading to all men. So verse 12 could mean this, it could mean uh, Adam sins uh, and sin enters the world, death through sin, death spreads to everyone, and in that condition of spiritual death. Man can do nothing but sin, ultimately. So they're affirming the same thing, two different ways to understand that verse, affirming the same exact thing, that Adam acts as a representative. When he acts as a representative, sin and death come into the world. Sin and death spread to all men. All men sin because of their spiritual death. We see this in various places in Scripture. The sinfulness of the human heart. The wretchedness of the human heart. You need need go no further than the book of Genesis itself. You trace through the story of the book of Genesis, you see time and time again, really by the time you reach the end of the book of Genesis, you're amazed that the human race still exists. Even the redeemed people of God are turning in on themselves and trying to destroy themselves. You have... Uh, sons turning against their fathers. You have men abusing women. You have a brother rising, against, rising up against his own brother. And you think there's no way that this human race is going to survive. Paul has affirmed that multiple places in Romans up to this point that human beings all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of of God by their sinfulness. Pelagius was a a theologian in the history of the church who thought differently. He thought differently. Rather than thinking about all of humanity underneath the representation of Adam, he saw each human being as kind of their own little Adam. And he was struck by, there's a reason for him thinking this. He went to Rome and he was appalled. This is 4th, 5th century He was appalled by the sinfulness that he saw by the Christians there, particularly the Christian leaders there. Hypocrisy filled the streets. People presuming upon the mercy of God. People thinking that by their increased sinning, they are making grace abound. So Pelagius is is seeing this. He's seeing this in Rome. And he's reacting against all of this sinfulness and all of this evil. Uh, Because he's thinking that if you tell people that they are sinners, then they're just going to act that way. If you tell people that they are sinful, and they are wretched, and they are wicked, they're going to leave, and they're going to live, and they're going to act that way, and live into their sin. Now there is something to that, and that's something we need to to learn, to understand, to be reminded of tonight as well. There's something to that. And that's why the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, go to such great lengths to show us that we need to think of ourselves as more than just sinners. We need to think of ourselves as having a new status in Christ, as having new life in Him. And when our mindset is formed around that reality, and we trust in the grace of God to to give us the Holy Spirit and to form, as we spoke this morning, that God would bring out the righteousness of Christ into all of the aspects of our lives when we trust the Lord to do that. Then we will see the fruits of 
new obedience. But Pelagius wound up in a place completely different. It wound up in a place foreign to the text of Scripture, that you're all your own covenant head, free to bring upon yourself condemnation or blessing. So he's denying biblical truth. He's denying reality as well, because as you take stock of the reality of this world, what we see is that the human race is so inclined to evil, is so inclined to sin, that there's nothing it can do to get itself out of the problem. That's not, of course, to say that each and every person acts in a way that's desperately wicked at each and every moment. But it is to say, brothers and sisters, that if we're honest with ourselves, if we think back upon our lives, if we think back upon even the past week, we know we will all have to admit to ourselves that we are sinful. This is the truth of the human heart. The Apostle Paul affirms it for us in Romans 3. As he's quoting Psalm 14, he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. The prophets affirmed it as well. Isaiah himself said, Your righteous deeds, the the best things that you do, they are like filthy rags before God. Jeremiah, of course, the famous verse that we hear time and time again here and that I bring up often. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can see and find its depths? Jesus himself, many people would be surprised to to learn about all the things that Jesus said about human sinfulness and the human heart. Jesus says in John 3, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were were evil. John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. Mark 10, why do you call me good? Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. John chapter 8 again, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Go to any other belief system, any other message that's trying to give you some kind of mindset to understand how you relate to God, they're not going to have this starting point. But having this starting point is so important because without understanding this, you will miss the glories of the grace of God. You will miss the goodness of the gospel. You will miss how it becomes good news. Philosophers and moralists try to explain away human sinfulness, try to say that it's a primitive idea, that it was because the human race was not yet developed far enough so that people could be convinced that they aren't evil, that they aren't wicked. But now we've accomplished so much, we've, we've achieved so much, and now everyone knows that there's no way we can think of ourselves as sinners. They chalk it up to a strange idea to primitive, self-hating minds that could not be convinced of their goodness because they had not seen things like the smartphone. They had not seen things like all of the machines that we have in hospitals that contribute to healing people of their sicknesses. So they convince themselves, that is the philosophers, the moralists of our day, convince themselves and they convince others that God is much more like us than he, he is unlike us. He's reasonable. He gives room to make mistakes. He forgets about the wrongs we have done. He's uh, kind of like a lenient grandparent rather than a holy and righteous and awesome father. But doing that, people start to hear that. They think it's futile because they feel their own sinfulness within them. Their conscience is at work within them. So then they have to convince themselves that there is no God at all. 
or they have to convince themselves that they are God. All of these new age spiritualities that tell people, you are God. So whatever you do is fine. Whatever you do is fine because you are the divine. Find the spark of the divine within yourself. All of this because people cannot stand the teaching that the human heart is sinful. Blaise Pascal, many, many, many years ago, noticed, recognized the foolishness of the philosophers and the moralists, tried to lessen uh, the effects of the doctrine of sin. He said this, speaking about people who would find within themselves the cure for all of their unrighteousness, the cure for whatever they have. It is in vain, O man, that you seek within yourselves the cure of your miseries. All your insight only leads you to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves that you will discover the true and the good. The philosophers promised them to you, but they were not able to keep their promise. Your principal maladies are pride, which cuts you off from God, sensuality, which binds you to the earth. They have done nothing but foster at least one of these maladies. If they have given you God for your object, it's only been to pander to your pride. They made you think that you were like him, that you resembled him by your nature. But those who have grasped the vanity of such a pretension, see, if you tell people that God is like you, they're going to see that that's vain because they know that's not right. People who have grasped the vanity of such a pretension have cast you down into the other abyss by making you believe that your nature was like that of the beasts of the field, have led you to seek your good and lust, which is the lot of animals." All this because men cannot stand to abide the teaching of the universal sinfulness of man. Not knowing that it provides the foundation for the greatest message you will ever hear. The good, the good news, the gospel. The Bible speaks of our sinfulness as death, darkness, slavery, incurable sickness, alienation, hardness, blindness. It speaks about affecting our body, our mind, our soul, our will, our emotions, our behavior. John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, it was said about him that he knew the Bible so well and he spoke in such biblical terms that if you got to know him and if you had private conversations with him, people had no idea how to distinguish when he was quoting the Bible or when he was just speaking from his own mind. Had no way of knowing that. John Bunyan said himself, the best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin in it to condemn the whole world. You watch the news at night, what do you see? You look at the world around you, what do you see? You look inside of your heart, what do you see? We see sin reigning in death. I'm dwelling on this part of the message tonight because the opposite truth is so deeply embedded in our culture It's also deeply embedded in the church. If you start to think that human beings are not universally sinful in the way that the Bible describes, all of a sudden you don't need to teach theology so much as you need to prescribe to the right methodology. And when you employ the right methodology, it will appeal to the goodness in human beings so that people might come to your church. It's not about methodologies. It's about remembering the good news of the gospel. See how badly we've messed this up. How badly we need to be reminded that at the core of our being, we need to be delivered. We need to be redeemed. Sin reigns in death because that's exactly what our human race deserved. That's exactly what human race deserved. But there is another reign, not sin reigning in death, but it is the reign of grace. Paul says in verse 15, The free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. What does Paul mean when he says this? 
What he's doing is that he's seeing that relative to the disobedience of Adam, the human race gets what it deserves. Adam disobeys. The human race disobeys. They're wallowing in sinfulness and in death. They're getting what they deserve. But in Christ, we get exactly the opposite of what we deserve. Paul illustrates this by using the picture of life. Life reigns in those who provided the evidence that death was reigning. Life reigns in those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Ultimately, this is realized in the, in the resurrection. That as we are given the gift of life, the gift of eternal life, we will see life reigning when we are raised to new life in Christ. But don't discount the many ways in which that eternal life intrudes upon us now. Don't discount the many ways in which the gospel brings life-transforming realities so that we need not live under the reign of death any longer, even while we still groan under the power of death and and the sway that it holds over our physical bodies. Grace, you hear me say this a lot, grace is not unmerited favor. What's unmerited favor? Getting something you don't deserve. Grace is demerited favor. It's getting the exact opposite of what you deserve. If you deserve death and you get eternal life, that is demerited favor. And that's why Paul says the free gift is not like the trespass. On the one hand, you have Adam's work and his disobedience, sin reigning in death. On the other hand, you have the whole human race, sinful. The whole human race with many trespasses, as he says. And what do they end up with? Life, righteousness, redemption, and salvation in Christ. That is the gospel. That's why the free gift is not like the trespass. And that's why it's important to understand that you have to start at human sinfulness. Because if you do not start at human sinfulness, if you don't need to be redeemed, then you will not rejoice in your Redeemer. If you do not understand that sinfulness is like a spiritual death and God needs to awaken your heart, he needs to touch your heart and give you life, you will not praise him as the sovereign God of the gospel. So the second idea, first is the the free gift is not like the trespass. The second, we'll close with this. Grace reigns in Christ because of God's love for us. We speak of human sinfulness. According to scripture, we often have to bear the criticism that biblical Christians are like nihilists or sociopaths. Only the neurotic could be so utterly convinced of the evil in the human heart. That is our world today. And people who ignore this reality of human sinfulness are ignoring the mountains of unfathomable evil going on in our world right at this very moment. Malcolm Muggeridge said that nothing is more empirically verifiable than the depravity of the human heart, and yet nothing is more intellectually resisted. We resist it. But when we look at it with biblical eyes, when we come to Romans 5.12 with biblical eyes, we can lay down our resistance against such a doctrine, against the doctrine of human sin, and we can focus on the fact that God loves sinners and that God loves to save sinners. Romans 5, verse 8, just before our passage tonight. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the glorious truth to cling to tonight. Be convinced that, yes, you are a sinner, but God loves sinners, and he loves to save sinners. Don't resist what we are by nature, for by nature we are wretched. But once we accept that, once we accept what we are, what uh, Jesus' own assessment of the condition of our heart, what God's word itself says about who we are, Once we accept that, we are able to realize even just the beginnings of the magnitude of God's love for sinners. As sinners, what is it for which we most deeply long? When we are convinced of who we are, when we believe believe the way God's word assesses the condition of our heart, what we really long is for someone to look into the deepest depths of who we are, and to have all of our sin, every evil and bitter thought, all the things in which we have sinned in thought, in word, in deed, all of the ways in which we prove that we are miserable offenders, all of our failures, all of our regrets, to have all of that laid bare before us, and for someone to look at us in all of that truth and say in that moment, I love you. I love you. And that is what God says to sinners in the gospel. Karl Barth said after a lifetime of studying some of the deepest theology, and there are a lot of problems with his theology. He he wasn't, uh, I wouldn't say that he was extremely faithful in every point that he brought out, but he still was an amazing thinker. He was asked to sum up his lifetime of studying theology and studying God's word, one of the most amazing thinkers of the 20th century. Now, how can you sum it up? This whole life that you've lived, you're now an old man, you've written millions of words about theology. Sum it up. And he summed up the the glorious truth we've been ruminating on for the last few minutes. Summed up his whole life, he said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you delight to show mercy to sinners, that you showed your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for showing your love for us in Christ. Thank you for being a God who looks into the depths of who we are and says, I love you. I love you because of my son. And thank you for your son's love for us, that he went all the way to the cross so that we might be forgiven. Amen. Stand together and sing all four verses of number 189, Jesus Loves Me.